This is the Christian Circle Podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. Today we're meeting and speaking to Dr. Thomas Lacona. Now he's a very, very prominent psychologist and counselor and he's written a number of books, the latest of which is How to Raise Kind Kids. So without wasting any time, I'm going to speak to him about how to raise our children of character. Well, I'm a developmental psychologist by training, and I've been working in the field of teacher and parent education for the last five decades. That's my my professional calling. And as a developmental psychologist, my special focus has been the development of morality, the development of conscience, the development of character and values. And I'm a father two grown sons. Each of them are raising large families, so my wife and I are blessed to have 14 grandchildren, all from two sons. Okay, wow. And um, I've been a family counselor, marriage counselor, and I've worked as a professor of education at the State University of New York at Cortland, where I founded a character education center, the Center for Respect and Responsibility. You have a lot of experience with dealing with kids, right? I mean, you personally as well as professionally. I've really worked with children in many different contexts. Uh, even as a college student, I directed a playground and was responsible for keeping maybe 50 to 100 children a day productively occupied and so on. And in my, my work as a psychologist, I've had the opportunity to work with teenagers, to work with younger children. and to counsel parents and to work directly as a counselor of, of children and adolescents. Okay. So how did you come about writing this, uh, writing these books? I mean, your latest book is about how to raise kind kids and you touch upon um, building character for children. So how did you come about writing this book? Well, uh, the focus on the recent book, as you know, is on kindness. Uh, Kindness is the heart of love, and love is the heart of good character. Many philosophers and theologians have argued that love is the wellspring of the other virtues, that they all really come from the central virtue of love. Love, uh, if from a religious standpoint, includes love of God, and then that overflows into love of neighbor. And it motivates us to want to lead a good life. We feel accountable for using our gifts, for using our lives to make a difference, a positive difference in the lives of other people. So love arguably is the central virtue that is the engine for character development. It provides the desire to be a good person. The first thing that you discuss about raising children of character is making character development first of all a priority and i think a lot of parents don't don't think of it that way i mean they're just raising kids as they go along so why is it so important to make character development a priority well it gives you a lens for looking at life for how you use your time for example um the catholic author james stenson has distinguished between two kinds of families entertainment-centered families in which the highest value is to be constantly entertained and never to be bored. Children growing up in, in that sort of family can't stand the moment of boredom. And parents keep supplying gadgets and devices and games and so on to keep their kids from ever experiencing uh, a boring moment. 
By contrast, character-centered families have a higher vision of the purpose of life. They believe that we're meant to serve each other. We're meant to, if you have a religious point of view, we're meant to serve God and, and to serve our neighbor, that we have gifts. In character center families, there's a, there's a clear sense of purpose where we all have gifts. We're meant to use our talents and, and gifts to make a positive difference in the world, to serve God, to serve each other. And so there's a sense of calling. And our time is precious. You know, we, we're not meant to waste it. We're not meant to spend endless hours staring at our screens or staring at the television set and so on. So it's a very different orientation toward life. One um, is to be constantly amused. The other is to try to be of service. And if you have a character development emphasis in your family, then you consider things in the long view. You realize you're raising adults. And you ask yourself, what I react to my child in this way, or when I talk to my child, um, when I make a decision about whether to give them something that they're asking for right away or, or help them learn to wait to delay gratification, how am I contributing to their development and into the sort of adult I hope they will become? Um, if there's a bad habit, if they have a hot temper, uh, how can I help them get over that so that doesn't become a permanent disposition in their character? If they are selfish in their orientation, how do I help them learn to be generous? So you, you think, what sort of a, a husband or wife will they make? What sort of a neighbor will they make someday? What kind of a citizen will they make? And you raise children with an eye to the long view. You, you want to try to contribute to those long-range character outcomes. That makes sense. And uh, you you talk about um, being an authoritative parent along with uh, focusing on character development. Now, a lot of people would say you should be a friend to your child. And, and that's the current, um, you know, the millennial view right now. But how is it that being an authoritative parent really helps? Well, the, the classic research in this area was done by the psychologist Diana Baumrein in the mid-1960s. And she identified, based on her observation of preschool-age children, three styles of parenting. The first she called authoritarian. This is all top-down, a lot of yelling at children, not much use of reasoning, not a lot of warmth and nurturance. Mm -hmm. And this produced not good outcomes. Children either became submissive and conforming, didn't develop a strong sense of their own identity as adolescents, as young people, or they rebelled. They got to a point in their teenage years where they said, I'm not going to take this anymore. And they simply rebelled against what parents wanted and took on a kind of anti-identity, overthrowing the parental values. Second style of parenting she called permissive. This was high on love, but low on confidence and authority. These were parents who were not secure about exercising their authority, didn't set clear rules and limits. Their children tend to be spoiled. They ruled the roost. They got away with bad behavior. And in the teenage years, they were likely to get into high-risk behaviors, sex, drugs, drinking, and so on. The effective style of parenting was she called authoritative. Yeah. These are parents who were high on love. They used a lot of reasoning to motivate compliance with their expectations, to help children understand what they were asking and why. Mm -hmm. And they were also very confident and secure in their exercise of authority. Mm -hmm. They could set a rule, stick to it, not cave into whining or tantrums. They were willing to listen to their children, to give them a fair hearing, as long as children expressed their feelings in a respectful way. But these were parents who sent a very clear message that mom and dad may have the final say, that they're in charge of the family. And authoritative parenting, not only in this initial study of preschoolers, but later in middle childhood and later still in adolescence, 
had the best developmental outcomes. The children were the most responsible, the most mature, the most confident. Their overall development was the best. So can you give us an example of what is an authoritative versus an authoritarian kind of parenting style? I mean, an example that would, you know, make it clear. Sure. Well, an authoritative parent, for example, would set a rule about curfew and hold a child accountable to that. And if they came in late, would not only require an explanation, but would say, well, look, you know, we had a deal. We were counting on you to honor our curfew. Mm-hmm. Um, and now if the car broke down, if there was some unavoidable thing, the, the child would have a responsibility for calling. So the mom and dad wouldn't be worried that there was an accident. So there would be some sort of consequence, uh, maybe a note of apology written, um, um, maybe the use of the car. Actually, the best way to to impose a consequence that's meaningful is to have the child be their own judge and jury to say, what do you think is a fair consequence that will uh, motivate you to take this seriously the next time? Another very important aspect of authoritative parenting is insisting on respect for yourself as a parent. Uh, coming from your sense of, of having a right to be respected and a right to be obeyed. So when children cross the line into fresh talking, into speaking in a disrespectful tone or in, in with content that is not respectful, the parent gives immediate corrective feedback. What is your tone of voice? You're not allowed to speak to me like that, even if you're upset. Um, do you need to go to your room? Calm down. We'll talk about this later. So there's an accountability to a very high standard of respect to um, understanding that God puts the fourth, the love your mother, respect your parents, honor your mother and father all the way up in, yeah. in a high position in the Ten Commandments. But how do you also show a child that you love them when you're being an authoritative parent? Well, actually, kids do interpret the exercise of authority if it's done in this firm but, but um, respectful way as, as a sign of love. Children may initially like getting away with um, bad behavior or watching whatever they want on, in, in the media or staying out as late as they like. But after a while, they come to understand intuitively that uh, when a parent does that, it's, it's not a sign of really caring about the child's welfare. Children are really not secure when parents don't set limits and boundaries. That's true of whether it's a teacher as the authority figure or whether it's a parent in a family. Now, we could also express love, of course, in many other ways. Um, the time that we spend one-on-one with our children is extremely important. We have to plan that and protect it because it's very easy in our busy lifestyles not to have emotionally intimate time. There should be uh, bedtime rituals, for example, reading to children at bedtime, uh, spending time um, with each child on the weekend. One superintendent, very busy man, said, I, I spend, I have four children, and each one gets a different Saturday afternoon once a month. It's just what me and that child, we do something we both enjoy, play a sport, go to a movie, go out for pizza, and that's sacred time. I protect that. And so that's that's terribly important. It strengthens the bond that gives us the inside track in a world of competing influences. Mm-hmm. Communication is critically important. We can have time with our kids but not really share intimate thoughts and feelings. And one of my um, favorite examples of of this kind of intimate, emotionally intimate communication comes from the autobiography of the, of the late Christian Barnard, who was the originator of the heart transplant. And he said, my father was a doctor and we had a a tradition on Sunday afternoons. We would walk together to the top of the hill by the dam 
Mm-hmm. And once there, he would sit on a rock and look down at the town below us. And then I would tell my problems to my father and he would speak of his to me. So that's the sort of exchange that we want, and we can facilitate that actually by something I call back and forth questions, where you ask your child a question, what's on your mind these days, what's something you're looking forward to, what's something you're worried about, what's a problem you're trying to solve, and then you say to your child, okay, ask me a question. In the beginning, they might say, well, I don't know what to ask you. say, well, you could ask me the same question I just asked you. And, and we did this with our children. And it, and it teaches them really that the art of conversation is really about asking good questions that draw out the other person's thoughts and feelings and so on. And, of course, love means sacrifice. It means um, trying to hold marriages together when they might be hitting a bump in the road, you know, seeking help to try to keep the marriage going and growing. The most important thing we can do is to provide children a secure and stable environment. Mm-hmm. So there are many kinds of sacrifices that we make for the sake of the children. A lot of this is actually a um, good example because uh, children learn through modeling. They learn through what they see in their parents. So how is it that you can teach by what you actually do and not just simply say stuff? It's obviously extremely important. When I interview parents, for example, and say, how did your mother and father teach you good values? How did they help you become a person of character? The first answer that people give is they set a good example. Um, and so they learn by watching what their parents did. And it takes it takes many forms. It, it could be just how the parents treat each other. Children watch the adults in the family and how they talk to each other. If they have an argument or a fight, do they make up quickly or do they freeze the other person out? Do they speak respectfully about people outside the family, about about relatives, about neighbors, about teachers, for example? How do they how do they treat others by the words that they say about them? And what are the stands that they make? We want our children to be able to resist peer pressure, for example. Yeah. But in order to do that, we need to be able to show them that we can stand up to pressure from from our peers, from other parents who might be very permissive. So we might take an unpopular stand. No, you you know, I don't want you playing that violent video game. It's not really a good game. I don't I don't want you seeing R rated films. I don't want you putting putting poison into your mind and heart and soul. Um, you can't go to parties where there's no adult supervision and where alcohol is going to be served, um, and so on. Stands like these define our values. They define what we believe in deeply. And when they when our kids say, well, yeah, but everybody else is going to that party or everybody else is seeing that movie, yeah. we need to be able to say, we're not everybody else. This is what we believe. And in our home, this is our way. Since just from your experience, how hard is it to transmit these Christian values when the world that you are immersed in is full of non-Christian beliefs and all these other peer pressures? How do you stay relevant as a Christian uh, with all this other pressure around you? Well, there needs to be something, of course, that brings the faith to life in the family so that that the children see that it's it's something which is not just words. You're, you don't just preach that there is a God and so on and so forth, but they see that you enact it in, 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 in various ways. You know, here's, here's for a, a, a mom, for example, and she says, if you see God as the center of things, it affects everything. There's a standard of behavior. It comes partly from people who have tried to discern the mind of God. And we all have our own hearts to listen to as well. And if we don't behave in this way, we are unhappy. 
because God God creates us for goodness. And we, when we go against his teachings and his desires for us, we make ourselves unhappy. We create problems. Uh, one family, for example, had a ritual of, of um, fasting on Monday night. It was inspired by the priest who gave a sermon on world hunger and encouraged families to be aware of how many people go to bed hungry and uh, don't have enough to eat, don't have enough to be um, nourished and able to resist disease and so on. So the family decided on Monday night the parents would just have a cup of broth, the kids would have a piece of fruit, the children could quiet growling stomachs at bedtime by having a, a bowl of cereal, but they donated the money saved to uh, an organization working to relieve world hunger, and they would read a letter from from that charity at the meal, so that they were conscious of the work that was going on, perhaps progress being made in, in one country, um, an outbreak of a crisis in another country. Mm-hmm. And the mother said, "We want we want our kids to believe that we are one human family, that God calls us to love our neighbor wherever our neighbor is." It also means saying. You know, it may look like everybody's having a lot of fun by having a lot of sex and doing drugs and whatever whatever they please. But if you really watch what happens, you know, when people lead those kinds of lifestyles, they don't make themselves happy. They they end up having a broken heart, getting pregnant out of out of wedlock, um, perhaps catching a disease. It's not it's not really a healthy lifestyle. And there are, basically there are two ways that we know what is true and right, we can look at God's revelation, we can look at scripture, but we can also simply look around at human experience. And both both of those roads lead to a single truth, because truth is essentially one. It all boils down to good communication as well, like communicating it correctly and, and repeatedly, I guess, to children. Yeah, there's a lot of repetition. The uh, sixth principle, for example, is is we, when we sort of hit the one we were talking about, the media and so on, uh, under managing the moral environment, we do need to have rules about phones and television and all the, all the things that can be channels of either bad or good influence, depending on what content we let in. Yeah. But a sixth principle is to use very direct teaching. Sometimes this has gotten kind of a bad rap. People will say, never lecture your children. They'll just tune you out, turn you off, and so on. But the research shows that parents who are very clear about what they believe, uh, combined with love and, and other, these other kinds of qualities, are more likely to produce uh, good character in their children. So we need to practice what we preach. That's the good example. But we also need to preach what we practice. And that takes the form of hundreds of small things. Say please. Say thank you. Don't interrupt. Uh, look at a person who's speaking to you. Um, you know, when you answer the phone, say this is, uh, and then identify yourself and say, who would you like to speak to? May I take a message? Uh, when you leave the table, clear your plate. Don't throw your clothes on the floor. Keep the houses in, in order. All these communicate, this is how we behave, this is how we live. And these things are done out of respect for others. So it's hundreds, literally hundreds of small teachings that together communicate a, a vision of what it means to be considerate of others, what it means to to really uh, behave with love and respect in, in the family and anywhere. And then you talk about um, disciplining children. I think uh, today if uh, a parent is caught disciplining a child, they're going to be taken on social media and be vilified for it. So how do you discipline children in, in today's day and age when people are really you know, looking down on this as a concept? Well, we, had, we need to understand that that the word discipline um, in Latin really means instruction. It means to teach. So 
the way we handled this one should be a way that teaches um, a clear moral lesson. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that can be done with a stern correction. For example, there was a study of very young children uh, from toddler age, one and a half to two and a half years of age, on the uh, playground. And the researchers observed how children would behave when another child was crying, say a child perhaps who stumbled, scraped a knee, fell off the slide. And they, they observed that about a third of the children, and again, these were only 18 months to two and a half, were compassionate interveners. They went over to the crying child. They offered comfort. They offered distraction, or they went to get an adult to help. Um, but most of the children did not offer that kind of compassionate comfort or assistance. They, In some cases, they just watched they, or they walked away. In some cases, they were even irritated in, uh, by the crying child and, and, and told them to stop crying and so on. But the researchers then looked at the patterns of mothering, mm -hmm. and they found that the children who were compassionate interveners, first of all, had mothers who were high on nurturing. There was a lot of warmth, a lot of love. Mm -hmm. But second, they had very clearly corrected their own child when their child was guilty of having hurt another child. For example, previously, uh, one little girl who was a compassionate intervener had, had previously pulled another girl's hair. She was just a two-year-old, but the mother said to her, you hurt Amy, pointing out the consequence of her actions. Pulling hair hurts, which was an instructive generalization. Never pull hair, a small moral absolute. Mm -hmm. So this is a combination of clear teaching conveyed with emotional concern, and it sent a strong message to the child, hurting is a big deal. Subsequently, children who were disciplined in that way took it seriously when they saw someone crying on the playground. Now, we don't want correction to end with the child feeling bad, so they should learn that when they do something wrong, they can and do and should do something to make up for it. So restitution is always important. You know, how can you make up for that? How can you, you, you know, your brother felt bad when you said that. What could you do to make him feel better? Your sister was hurt when you wouldn't let her play. How can you make up for that? Restitution is an apology of action. So that's an important way to conclude a discipline encounter because it enables a child to make amends. So at what age do you think this should start? Because a lot of parents uh, say, okay, he's just a child, you know, and then they just let it go. And then they're three and then they're five. And they're just a little children to them, but then they're growing up and they're picking up stuff. So when do you start disciplining a child? Well, I think, um, you know, it's, you really need to do it even, even before I'm trying to think, you know, the first sort of real discipline encounter we had with our own our first child. And I think it was not long after the first year of life. I mean, in a sense, discipline begins with firm expectations. You, you, can give, you can give a child who's only nine months of age a firm command, give it to me. Let's say they picked up, picked up a knife or something that can hurt them. Give it to me. You say that with authority, with sternness, and then you expect the child to comply, and if they don't respond, you take it from them. But the research shows even in that first year of life, if you are sensitive to the child's needs, they are much more likely to be cooperative when you give a direction, come here, sit still, give it to me. Uh, so that there's a two-way street, even in that very first year of life. And then when they're, you know, starting to walk around, they're going to be getting in things. They may even, when they're, when they're frustrated, if you won't let them get into something that they're curious about, uh, you try to distract them, that may not work. And you see the first small temper tantrum, like I remember when our first son, uh, in that kind of a situation, 
expressed his frustration by taking a swipe at, at me. You know, he's, he actually tried to strike me. And and I remember you know, the second time he did it, I, I, I reacted even more strongly than the first. I just sort of put a finger right up to him and I said, no, you know, and I, and I, and, and his eyes filled up, you know, and he teared up and, but I could see that the reprimand made an impression and he, he didn't do that anymore. So even at a very early age, we need to react in clear ways. There, there's a need for a timeout. Uh, a neighbor, for example, had a problem with her three-year-old son biting his little sister. And so she, I advised her to, to take him immediately to a timeout chair and require him to stay there. He, he cried, of course, when she did, but he had to learn that that was not tolerable behavior and, and so on. So discipline should start early and it should be as consistent as possible so the children don't think, well, some of the time I can get away with this and some of the time I can't. We don't want it to be a guessing game. We want them to know that we're serious, even about the small things. The small things matter. I also want to know about uh, back talking. I mean, there's a lot of kids when they're disciplined, especially if they're disciplined in front of other people, which I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but uh, they back talk and they, they kind of embarrass the parent and then the parent loses authority in that situation. How do you handle those kind of kids? Well, very time, very often parents are sort of paralyzed if if a child misbehaves in front of other adults. They they don't they don't know how to respond. They're embarrassed by the bad behavior and they're uncomfortable really disciplining the child in a clear way. And what I advise in that situation is to take the child off. You know, you just pick them up or you take them by the hand and you walk walk firmly away from the situation where you can deal with it in a private manner and give a stern correction and say that you you know you may not do that um, you know or you if they've been uh, we'll we'll deal with this further when we get home so the child knows that this is serious business they're going to face the music when you get home and and they you know may have to go to their room or lose a privilege or whatever but we certainly shouldn't be wimpy just because we're in a public situation because then kids will know that that's where they can be manipulative they they can get away with bad behavior because the parent is not not comfortable or confident about how to respond mm-hmm. so Moving on to the next one, you talked about solving conflicts fairly. And this can be a bit of a problem if you've got uh, two or three kids and then you always take the side of one or you say the older one is the one who should make the sacrifice. So how do you solve these conflicts fairly? There's there's several dimensions to this. First of all, there's uh, the kind of conflict that occurs between siblings, which is a big disruptor of family peace. And what I strongly recommend here is having a dedicated space in the home for conflict resolution. And if children can read, you have the steps written out. If they can't, then you can still teach them orally. And that's where they go to work out problems. In the beginning, you have to coach them through the steps. Sit down, take five deep breaths, you know, count to 10 or 20 or whatever, you know, but get yourself calm. Uh, this is where mindfulness uh, can be helpful when you put your hand on your tummy so you're in touch with your breathing and you have a sense of that, the breathing pattern and it helps you to calm down. And then you're ready to talk, all right? Take turns telling your feeling about the problem and listen to the other person by looking at them and really hearing what they say. Then after each person has taken a turn, you say, all right, try to say back to the to the other person what their feeling is about the problem. If the children can't remember, then you say, okay, um, Billy, can you say again why you were upset with your brother? 
and they learn to listen in a way that enables them to to reflect back, to bounce back what was said by the other. And then you're onto the ability to solve the problem because once you have understanding, you have the basis for solving the problem and you say, okay, let's uh, try to find a solution that's fair to both of you. Uh, Take turns offering your idea. Sammy, what do you think? Billy, what do you think would be fair? And then we have to work out an agreement that you both think is fair. And then you can write that down. Uh, Often that's helpful. Uh, Post it. Uh, but you're really teaching children that this is a way to talk it out, work it out. You sit down, you tell your feelings, you try to decide what's fair to both. Mm-hmm. And after a while, children um, guess so they can do this very well. Uh, there's a, there are schools we work with where they teach this from first grade on up, and the children get very skilled at solving their own problems without adult intervention. In the beginning, you do have to stand there, give feedback, coach it like a skill the way you would teach a sport. You, know, you have to help children through the steps, give them feedback, um, bring them along until they, they've practiced it and it becomes something they, they know by heart. Now, there's the conflict that is whole family conflict where there may be squabbles not only between the kids but between the parents and the children, between the adults and each other. And the family meeting is a good vehicle for sitting down saying, okay, what kind of a week was it? What was good? What was not so good? You start with a prayer if you're um, a faithful family. You ask God for help and, and the grace to love each other and to solve whatever problems you might be having. And then you could also offer appreciations. We would start our family meetings with appreciation time. What's something somebody did in the family that this week that you appreciated? And that gets a flow of good feeling going. And then you say, okay, um, how can we help next week be a better week, more peaceful, more cooperative. Mm-hmm. And you select a particular problem that was challenging the week before. It may have been bedtime hassles or trouble getting off to school in the morning or fights over screens or kids not doing their chores without nagging. And and you focus on that and you know, we would go around the table. Each person get a chance to speak, give their point of view. Then we do a second time around. What, what do you think would be fair? And then we try to put our solutions together, write it up, put it on the refrigerator and say, when shall we meet again to see how our solution is working? And when you do that, and that's a critical step of holding your, yourself accountable and seeing how the plan is actually working out, you say, okay, what's been good? What's been better? How can we do even better in going forward? And the family meeting really draws upon the positive power of the group. Many times as parents, we try to deal with these problems with just one-on-one with a child as an individual. But the family meeting constitutes us visibly as a unit. We're sitting down together. We're pooling our resources. We're all trying to make this the best family we can be. So that's a, a, a strategy, a resource that many parents never actually tap into, but it's potentially very powerful. And then you talk also about practicing virtues. Now, first, I'd like to ask, what are these virtues that you're talking about? I think kindness is one of them, since your book is all about it. Uh, but what are these virtues that you you want children to develop, and how do you make them develop these virtues? Well, we st- we start out, for example, by realizing that character really consists of these objectively good human qualities, which have been called virtues down through the ages, and, and about which there's really amazing agreement. You can find these affirmed in cultures all over the world, in religious traditions or all over the world. You can find them in children's literature. You can find them in books of wisdom. The first of the what I call 10 essential virtues is simply wisdom. It means good judgment. It's the ability to make 
good decisions, to take the time to make the best possible decision, to understand what's really important in life. Uh, for example, it's more important to do what's right than, than to be popular. It's more important to be a good person than to be rich or famous. Mm-hmm. So wisdom is, is knowing what's truly important and knowing how to put all the other virtues into practice in specific situations. Second essential virtue is justice. Uh, that includes respect for self, respect for others, responsibility, fulfilling our commitments, carrying out our obligations, um, being a good citizen, uh, and so on, doing our duty, uh, basic courtesy, all those are qualities of justice, which is essentially treating others as they deserve to be treated with respect for their human dignity, for their for their rights as a person, for their intrinsic worth. Fortitude is the third great virtue, and this includes courage, uh, resilience, perseverance, endurance, self-confidence, all the qualities and strengths of character that enable us to do what's right in the face of difficulty. Uh, life is difficult. There are many hardships, many disappointments, many frustrations, many setbacks, and we need fortitude in order to do what's right in the face of those inescapable difficulties. Self-control, the fourth great virtue, is ability to govern our emotions, to control our temper, to uh, control our impulses, to pursue even legitimate pleasures in moderation. Mm -hmm. This includes... um, the ability to resist all kinds of temptations, including sexual temptations, mm-hmm. uh, to basically exercise the kind of control over all these appetites, which in and of themselves are not bad, but they have to be regulated in, with wisdom in a way that does not allow a desire to be to develop into an addiction. Either we rule our desires or our desires rule us. The fifth great virtue is, is love. This includes empathy, compassion, kindness, generosity, service, love of country, and a good sense of uh, forgiveness of others. Love goes beyond justice. It gives more than justice demands. Uh, love is sacrificing for the life of a, for the welfare of another person. And the ultimate is, is to even be willing to lay down your life out of love for another a positive attitude is a sixth virtue. This includes enthusiasm, a sense of humor, flexibility, hope, optimism. And if we have a positive attitude, we lift other people up. And if we have a negative attitude, we drag others down, including ourselves. We become a burden to the people around us. And so a positive attitude enables us to to look on the bright side of life, to see what is truly good, to, and so on. Hard work is a seventh essential virtue, includes initiative and goal setting and being resourceful and basically doing doing our best at whatever we have to do. And we never accomplish anything worthwhile without lots of hard work, a um, fundamental virtue. Integrity is an eighth. It's basically being honest with with others and not cheating, not lying, not stealing, but also honest with ourselves, not deceiving ourselves. For example, it's very easy to make excuses for your bad behavior and say, well, well, um, I, I couldn't help it, or everybody was doing it, or it wasn't my fault. And so integrity includes being willing to examine our conscience and to be honest with ourselves. Gratitude, the ninth virtue, has been called the secret of a happy life. It's appreciating um, the benefits that we receive from others around us, the blessings that we receive from God, uh, acknowledging our debt to others. When I traveled in Japan, for example, I'm very conscious of their sense of indebtedness to previous generations. Mm-hmm. So they're in touch with their ancestors and all the ways in which they've benefited through the generations from people who have gone before. 
Gratitude includes curbing the tendency to complain, which really makes life unhappy for those around us. And then the 10th great virtue is humility, which in a sense drives the whole quest for character because humility makes us aware of the areas where we can improve. It motivates us to try to be a better person, makes us aware of our faults and failings. If we have pride and arrogance, we are blind to our faults and therefore cannot correct them. So humility, in a sense, is like wisdom, one of the most foundational virtues, and it it lays the basis for all the others. And the good thing about all these virtues, because it can seem overwhelming when you tick them off like this, and of course you don't sit sit kids down for a lecture on the 10 virtues, but it it gives you a sense of what's important, what makes up good character. Um, If you're missing one of these virtues, you're missing something that's part of good character. But the good news is each of us possesses each of these virtues to some degree mm-hmm. uh, and our challenge is to try to to move along the continuum to develop them to a higher degree and when we when we don't show them to to admit our mistakes and to try to do better we talk to them about it and then what do we do about it how do we assess whether they're developing them or not or how do we show them that these virtues have to be developed well i mean really all the all the the principles that we've been talking about are ways of putting the virtues into practice in real life, you know, by the authority we exercise, by the love that we show, by the example that we set, by how we respond to misbehavior, by the rules that we have about the media and so on. And again, of course, certainly by, by how we practice our, our faith. Do we, do we live that out? Do we, do children see us praying? Do they see us relying upon God in, in times of difficulty? Do they see us giving thanks to God for, for everything and, and doing that not just once a day at, at mealtimes, but you know, when we arise in the morning, when we go to sleep at night, do they see us being in touch with God so that we, they, they understand that God is not an abstraction, that this is a, a real relationship. And when I talk to teenagers about faith, because by the time kids get to be teenagers, they can ask, of course, is, does God exist? Is, is this all real? Is this just something my parents have taught me? And so it's very important to acknowledge, first of all, God has given you a mind where you can question even whether God exists. You know, that's, you have that ability. And why does God give you the ability to, to even doubt his existence? It's because God wants you to really decide for yourself on a personal level what is real and true, because only then will you have a deep, a deep commitment to it. And then if you want a relationship with somebody, whether it's a friend, a parent, a brother, a sister, and so on, what does a relationship require? It requires communication. If you never talk to your parents, you couldn't possibly claim to have a good relationship with them. If you never talk to your friends, it would be silly to say, well, I'm very close to my so, you know, that's, and I, I, we never speak or communicate in any way, but we're close. Well, of course, you only feel close to someone that you communicate with. So if you want a relationship with God and you want to experience that God is real, then prayer is absolutely essential, which is basically talking to God and then, and then listening to God. And you have to set aside time for that. I've, when I have something called a two-minute prayer, which I give to teenagers and say, just, just do this for two minutes at the start of a day where you sit down. You quiet yourself. Scripture says, "Be silent and know that I'm God." So just be quiet, and then you know, see what thoughts and, and feelings come into you, and and then um, you know, you you'll begin to experience nearness to God because you were drawing, you're making an effort to draw close, and then you can talk to God about whatever is in your heart, on your mind, and and do it as if God was right there because He is. 
uh, you know, you know, so don't fake it. Say, you know, God, there's this kid at school. I'd like to, you know, punch him out because he's driving me. And but I, how do I deal with this? And so, give give the strange story. Don't don't beat around the bush. You know, God wants to know what's really going on, and and so, talk to God the way you would to your best friend. And they and that has to become a habit. Prayer has to become a personal habit. If if somebody's important in your life, you make time. So if we can cultivate the habit of personal prayer, that's the best fortification our children can have when they leave the home and go into challenging environments, whether it's university, where they'll encounter lots of people who think that uh, science replaced religion and that God is a superstition and so on. They'll need they'll need to be able to have reason for the faith is, that is in them, as St. Peter says, and and they'll, they'll need to be prepared for the the public atheists who have written very persuasive, articulate books saying that religion is a lot of nonsense and, mm-hmm. and it ought to be set aside. It's been a destructive force. And of course, religion can be the basis for terrorism and a lot of terrible things, which really are not faithful to love of God or love of neighbor. And we, we need to talk to our kids about that. People do awful things in the name of religion and have done so through the centuries. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a long conversation. It's got to be a frequent conversation in our in our family, um, God and sex were probably the two leading topics of the teenage years because there was so much to talk about and yeah. so much to prepare them for that it has to be a continuing conversation. So you also talk about uh, fostering spiritual development. I'm so glad that you touched on prayer uh, because in, in our parish, they re- every retreat, I think they say, a family that prays together stays together. So it's like a mantra in our in our parishes. But how soon do you start fostering spiritual development with children? In our parish, they start at pre-K when the kids don't even understand anything. When would you say you should start this and how would you foster this? Well, certainly there are wonderful picture books based on the New Testament, the Old Testament, Bible stories that give children something that they can see. So the stories about Jesus, the miracles of of Jesus, um, his love, how he reveals the face of the Father to us. He shows us that God is love, God is mercy, God is also justice, he holds us accountable, and so on. But we, we can make it very concrete. And then the rituals, do we pray together? Do we um, do we do that every time before we partake of food and even a, even a snack? You know, you might be sitting down to have um, some fruit or or cookies and milk, whatever it is. And do you give thanks to God before the smallest sorts of enjoyment, so that our children see that it's not a casual thing, it's not a an occasional thing, but it's something that is very much in our hearts and minds. So we're practicing the presence of God in, in these kinds of small ways. And, and then of course, helping children understand suffering because uh, for many people, suffering is a scandal. How can a good God allow people who are innocent to suffer terribly, to get cancer, to be the victim of a drunk driving accident, to, you know, to experience the, the loss of a job, which is desperately needed to support the family, you know, how, how, how can we understand these things? And, and so we need, we need to help our children develop a worldview that includes suffering and evil. Uh, some suffering happens because of sin. Mother Teresa used to say, don't blame God for poverty. People are poor because others do not share. Mm-hmm. Very simple, but very true. Yeah. 
Now, there are also natural disasters, tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes. And that's because we're no longer in the, in paradise. We're not living in the Garden of Eden. We had a perfect start, but there was an original sin. And we're living in an imperfect world. Nature is, is good and beautiful in many ways. But nature can also be unpredictable and result in death and suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and then to believe that in, in God's providence... He always draws good out of out of bad, and especially when we cooperate with him. In the face of a natural disaster, you find great acts of heroism and selflessness, people giving and, and sacrificing for others. And often people's faith is strengthened in those very adverse circumstances. They, they come to believe that you know, so much around us is temporary and really the, the things that matter most are the eternal things, the love we have for each other, the love we have for, for our creator. But all this has to be part of the family conversation, part of the family traditions, the rituals, the, the everyday living, so that it has that reality. And then, it, as I was saying, it needs to become personalized through a life of prayer because I don't think in this world it's possible to hold on to faith Without personal prayer, there's a very there was a priest who passed away not too long ago, a Father Hugh Thwaites, and he said that in a conference on why so many children fall away from the faith when they leave the home, some even before they leave the family, and he said in his experience there were three reasons. The first was sin; you become involved in bad behavior, sex, um, pornography. Yeah. drugs, uh, stealing, whatever, and it, it separates you from God, especially if you're not repenting of that bad behavior. It creates a chasm, and you drift away from from uh, certainly worship and prayer and ultimately even from believing in God. He said the second reason is, is that religion was something external. It was a set of behaviors that you did to please somebody else, perhaps your parents, but there was never anything on the inside. There was never the living faith in the living God. And the third reason why young people lose faith, stems directly from that second one. The reason there wasn't anything on the inside is that there wasn't the habit of prayer. There wasn't personal communication, talking and listening. And because because of that, there wasn't the spiritual vitality that is necessary to resist the onslaughts of a pagan world. So when you send your kids off to college or into the university or into the world of work, they really need to be equipped with the knowledge, the understanding, the habit of prayer in order to, to be able to hold on to faith in the face of everything that they will encounter. When you look at all of this, parenting is not something you just do, you know, at the spur of the moment. Like It's something you need to plan and you need to do a long time before you can send your kids away. And that's not the time when you cry about children falling away because you've You've had like 20 years before that to, to do, lay the groundwork and do the stuff. Yes, it, it has to be it, begun early. It needs to be continued consistently and faithfully. And and, and actually to, to even continue after they're out of the nest because our children still need a relationship with their parents. They, they, need, they need counsel. They'll, um, you can say, look, you know, once you leave the home, I'm not. I'm not there to be looking over your shoulder, to be giving you direction and advice in the moment, but hope that my voice will be inside of you so you can kind of think, okay, what would, what would mom say, you know, would be a good decision or what would, what advice would dad give me here? Because, you know, we've tried to pass on our life experience. We've tried to share our wisdom that we have through those experiences and we've tried to share our faith. 
you, you will be responsible for your own decision. In fact, you're responsible for the person you become. There's a very wise statement by 14-year-old Anne Frank before the Nazis came to the door and took them off to the death camp. She said in her journal, the diary that's famous now, the diary of Anne Frank, that parents can set their children on the right path, but that ultimately the final forming of our character lies in our own hands. Mm -hmm. We shape the person we become. We create our character through the choices we make. So we want our children to know that, that ultimately, um, with the grace of God, they are the chief architects of their personal character. A parent can't really build that for them by reaching inside of them. Uh, they have to build it themselves. We can be a tremendous influence. We can be a great help. We can surround them with a good environment, try to set a good example. But it's really a personal responsibility, and it's a lifelong task. It never stops. It's a lot of hard work, it seems. <laughs> it is, but it's what is perhaps the most meaningful and and ultimately rewarding work that we could have. I mean, there may be disappointment, certainly. Parents don't control the outcome. As I say, you know, God he gives each of us free will. And, and of course, he, he couldn't even make the first children be good, right? They committed the original sin. So, you know, we are given freedom, which is ours to do with as we choose. Uh, we're called to use it with responsibility, but we, we each have free will, and our children will begin exercising that as soon as they're walking around. Uh, so we have to do our best as, as parents and, and let, our, let God and our children do the rest. So there, there must be, I mean, once this airs, uh, there'll be a lot of parents who are thinking, okay, so well, my kid is maybe now nine or maybe 10 or whatever, 15. What if they start with all of these, these steps today? Is it late if they start today or it is still a good thing? Wherever, whatever age that child may be, if they start today. Well, the wonderful thing about human nature is that it's, it's open to continuing development. There's a wonderful plasticity to to the brain, to, to human nature, whatever whatever way we want to speak about it. So there are always potential, we have potential for growth. Even hardened criminals, people who are terrible murderers, serial killers, they're having cases of conversions and redemption in prison. So we're always capable of coming to the good, of coming to God. Uh, but it's, it requires in today's culture a higher level of intentionality, of being deliberate, of not just drifting along, not just doing it in the spur of the moment, to use your phrase. And, and so I recommend par parents think of the family as something that they do want to deliberately shape, even have a mission statement, which I speak of in the, in the kindness book. Uh, here, I'll just give one example of a family. I had four children, nine, seven, six, and four. Their name was Davidson. And they sat down to say, what kind of a family do we want to be? What are our most important values? What are the virtues, the qualities of character that we want to live by and hold ourselves accountable to? And, and they created a series of we statements, which is how you want to do this if you're writing a family mission statement. We commit to being kind, honest, and trustworthy. We don't lie, cheat, steal, or hurt someone on purpose. We don't whine, complain, or make excuses. When we make a mistake, we learn from it and move on. We work to keep our minds, bodies, and souls healthy, strong, and pure. And purity is especially important given the pornographic culture yeah. that our children are, are living in. A lot of work needs to be done there. And then we, we commit to learning and growing in our faith through trust in God's goodness. And finally, we live with an attitude of gratitude. And you write this out, and the kids have an input into it. You do it together. 
they have a voice as well. And, and then you post it in the kitchen or somewhere where you'll see it, review it at the start of the week, and then refer to it when something happens, you know, a bump in the road, things go off the rails for a bit. And those things will happen inevitably in the course of a week. And you say, what are we forgetting? Or how can we go back to number two? And, and it gives you a, a reference point, a set of ideals to aspire to. And it helps you to be intentional about striving toward these goals as a family. This is who we are. This is our shared sense of purpose. And it becomes a shared sense of identity where children really take pride in coming from a family that believes in these kinds of things. So you wrote now this book, your latest, because you've written a number of books based on raising kids and um, all the uh, external issues that kids have from peer pressure. And your latest is How to Raise Kind Kids. So um, where can people find about more about your book or um, the latest about it? And where can people contact? Well, you can find the book on a number of different uh, sites. Amazon, for example, it's simply How to Raise Kind Kids. You can go to my author website, which has not only information about this book, but other resources and a link to our, our character education center where there's a lot of free materials. Our, my author website is simply www.thomaslicona.com. So that's those are a couple of places where you can go for further information and resources. Um, and also... You'll find um, some references there to to children's literature. To cho- we really want to make use of bedtime reading and other opportunities to read good books to really immerse our children in stories of virtue. That's one of the oldest ways of teaching character through the ages and across cultures, to expose them to many good examples, not simply our own, but to, to good literature, to stories of kindness and honesty and courage that will inspire them, that will give them other good examples. So any last uh, bits of advice that you want to give? Well, not to not to give up. It's easy to get discouraged as a parent. We blow our top, we lose our temper, we say things we regret. We think, oh, I'm a terrible parent. I just set an awful example. And you know, when we do something that we feel bad about, just say, look, I'm sorry I lost my temper. Let's sit down and talk about this. Or I shouldn't have said that. Um, you know, I was I was feeling a lot of stress for work today, and and I'm you know I'm sorry I was impatient with you. And so they see that we are able to apologize in humility. That yeah. if your your second reaction can be different from your first reaction, that itself sets a good example. Mm-hmm. But just to keep discouragement from the door, there's an old saying that all discouragement comes from the devil. He wants to convince us that there's no sense in trying. That God is disappointed in us he will forgive us and we shouldn't forgive ourselves and of course that's that's that a temptation we should resist um with the grace of god we can always do better so thank you so much so i'm really happy because uh this is really a lot of stuff and it's it's, it's even though it's very scientific i mean you have a lot of um experience and uh you've got given us so many examples so i'm really happy with the way this podcast turned out well, I really appreciate your ministry, Pamela. It's it's a wonderful kind of outreach. Parents need support. They need encouragement. They need practical tips. It's the hardest job on the planet. So God bless you for the work that you're doing.